Thank you for listening to Israel Rebound. This is another special edition on getting a first-hand look on what's going on in Israel through our co-host Liz Feldstern, who's in Jerusalem. And again, I'm Alan Padesh. Today, not in California, but in Pennsylvania. So Liz, let's get started. How are you? I am. I'm okay. Thank you. So we're two weeks into this war. Uh, it's been incredibly challenging from afar to watch things progressing uh, or being addressed, I should say. I don't want to say progressing. We did see that two hostages were released the other day. And then there was a report this morning that there were actually 212 hostages that have been, our families that have been notified about the hostages. Um, so two were released, but then the count went up to from 203 to 212. Uh, I know that's on everybody's minds. Um, my question to you is really, can you just give us an overview of have things normalized at all in Israel or are things still um, chaotic and challenging? Well, that was kind of stupid of me. Of course, it's challenging. What do you experience? Well, I can definitely, you know, answer about the extent to which any different aspects of life here are moving towards normalcy or, or a new kind of normal. I would say that um, in some ways, I think that return to normalcy has actually even been slower than any of us anticipated, even after we really understood the full extent or to the amount that we're able to now, you know, understand what happened on October 7th. And after knowing how many people had been mobilized and all of that. I think that people here still thought that we had sort of seen the initial brunt of it and there would be a period of adjusting after that with things maybe very slowly, but in a general direction of getting um, back to normal. And it seems that that is not necessarily the case. They're, the systems that are impacted by this situation are just so large and so interconnected that for my experience, I think it feels a little bit like sort of taking, you know, every time you take two steps forward, then you take another one back. Even as the schools have tried very, very hard to figure out how to allow students to have some online learning and some in-person learning, every time they figure something out, you know, another aspect of the of the situation changes and what was acceptable security wise one day is not the next or the people that were the staff that were able to be at the school on one day are no longer available. The rules change. Um, so we've had a lot of back and forth and definitely not the consistency that we would all like to see because we know, especially for the youngest students, but maybe for all students um, is really important. So that general trend to normalcy, I guess, is not happening to the extent that I at least had thought it would be. So talk a little bit more about the schools. You mentioned last week that well over 300,000 reservists volunteered or were called up. And many of those reservists are teachers or spouses or teachers. Uh, how has that impacted the learning in the schools so far from your perspective? Yes, so that is true. And that is a significant part of the difficulty of schools reopening, but it's actually only 
one of the issues because in addition to needing to have enough manpower to open a school in terms of teaching staff, um, you also need to have a shelter in the building which can fit the appropriate number of people. So if a school normally has 300 students and the shelter will only hold 150, right, you need to alternate days when kids can come because you can't have more than 150 students in the building. Um, In addition, there are many schools that um, because of their location or the way that their physical plant is built, that it's been determined that because of the current situation, they need increased security. Well, in order to have that increased security, again, you need manpower. Um, and and there just aren't enough armed and trained security personnel to go around right now. Um, another issue, and uh, maybe it's a somewhat more minor one, but it's definitely an issue, is in terms of other types of support staff in the schools, for example, the cleaning staff, which in some parts of the country are mostly or entirely uh, Arab workers who parents are at present not comfortable having in the school. So even if you have a school that has somehow has enough teachers to open and somehow figured out the security situation and somehow have the shelter, if you don't have anybody to clean the facilities, that's another barrier to getting kids back in school. So with all of those many different issues and probably even more that I haven't mentioned and maybe I'm not aware of, um, schools are having a hard time figuring out how to open at all and certainly how to open consistently. So in addition to that, you know, when kids go off to school, that means parents can go off to work. When <laughs> when kids are home and uh, parents need to be home to watch their kids, there's another workforce that's not being able to provide for the country. Is that also becoming an issue? Uh, absolutely. You know, it's a little COVID-esque in some ways, uh, for better or worse. Many of us have that experience of figuring out, you know, how to juggle working at home and watching kids at home or businesses have the experience of figuring out how to work with partial staff. Um, So all of those things are happening now as well. But it is, I think, something that is apparent and has, you know, ripple effects in every industry in Israel right? Whether it's an occupation where people have the luxury of being able to do their job more or less remotely or not, there are significant, uh, there's significant impact on how much can get done on people's capacity, on productivity of the workforce because of this situation and having the kids at home for sure. Talking about the workforce, we've often talked about food on this podcast. You mentioned, (laughs) well, food's essential. And you mentioned being at the store and not seeing certain products on the shelves. Um, I've been following up on some of the damage that's been done in the south, in in the Negev, where some of the agricultural farms are, the kibbutzim that produce things. And I'm learning more and more about the destruction that took place during this invasion and that chicken uh, hatcheries and coops and uh, farms and produce and stuff are not being uh, 
one, they're destroyed, or two, they're not being able to be cultivated. So are you seeing a result of some of that in the stores that the produce and um, chicken that's that's harvested and um, grown in, in the South, is that not, is that impacting the stores? So there, there is an impact for sure, but I think that um, because of market demands, businesses have to a very large extent and to the extent that they're able found alternative routes, alternative suppliers, right? They, they have an incentive to try and keep their shelves stocked so that they can sell the things that are on them. Um, and I would say that 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 is an area which, at least in Jerusalem, seems that does seem to have normalized. Uh, this past week, I did not notice as many items uh, or types of items missing. In fact, I would say a little bit of the opposite. On um, this past Friday, out shopping, people are still in a little bit of overdrive of of shopping of of which is probably a combination of two things, I think, at least, right? It's some wanting to be well-stocked and prepared in the case of what if, but I think it's also filling a psychological need, right? People want to self-soothe and comfort themselves and and purchase foods, but it was almost, um, certainly not in terms of the, the mood of the people, but the busyness felt almost like a like a pre-holiday shopping day. That the stores were sort of overly busy. The lines were extra long. Um. So, uh, so consumerism is definitely uh, picking up. In addition to that, we know that many people are volunteering to prepare meals for families and for soldiers. So there might be a, another rush to the stores to make sure that there's enough food to go around. I also noticed that there are many, many restaurants around the country that are preparing food for soldiers and for families. And one of the issues that has come out is that most of those restaurants are not kosher and have asked for kosher certification. I think you mentioned a little bit about that last week, that that here we have the rabbinate loosening their their certification process in order to make sure that there's enough food and services to go around. Are you seeing that at all in Jerusalem? Uh, We are definitely seeing many restaurants that have turned their operations almost entirely to providing food for soldiers and including uh, restaurants that are not um, certified kosher most of the time changing over their kitchens and doing everything that they need to do in order to be certified as kosher. I'm not sure that I've heard of a case where the rabbinic authorities are loosening the rules rather from the other direction. It's that the restaurants are choosing to rise to the, you know, standards of the the rabbinic authorities in order to have a kosher certification in order to make sure that all of the soldiers can eat their food. If they're going to be preparing Right in this time of need, they want to make sure that they're doing it in a way that's inclusive. And I'll say one other thing, uh, which because I think it's related to this topic of how faith and religious observance um, tie into 
military service and reserve duty right now, I heard something very interesting that it is common right now that on the the bases and in all the locations where reservists are serving, that there have been significant, there have been huge numbers of donations of everything, right? The Right now, it took a little bit of time, but right now, as far as I have heard, all of the reservists are, are pretty well stocked. They have gotten generous donations of all the things that they're, they needed, which is wonderful. One of the things that they got donations of were tzitzit, fringes, you know, Jewish ritual fringes, um, which is an interesting thing to donate. And um, most of the soldiers in their day-to-day probably don't wear them. But I have heard that they have all decided to wear them now, sort of from the attitude of, well, if it's one other, you know, perhaps a way to assure your safety and get a few extra points, it's like, you know, doesn't hurt, why not try it? Um, but that's just interesting that sort of the the perception is now that everybody on the base is wearing Jewish ritual fringes. Um, I thought that was a surprising turn of events. Well, I, I read a comment that somebody reposted that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs, you know, put out years ago that every little mitzvah makes a difference in healing the world. So if these soldiers feel like wearing tzitzit is, contributes to that, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Which is something we should all think about in terms of, you know, how we can all play a role. And if doing acts of kindness, acts of love and kindness makes a difference, then we should kind of focus on that. Speaking of acts of love and kindness, you mentioned last week that you were um, attending a uh, a procession for a soldier that had been killed. Are you seeing more and more of those opportunities or those experiences uh, in Jerusalem? There, there continue to just be a, a shocking number of funerals. Um, really just all the time, right? The, we knew, we've known now for, you know, over a week and a half that with the extremely high number of casualties and the circumstances of which some of those people were murdered, that the identification process would take time. And it has. And that means that we just have this steady stream of um, of families being notified and and funerals taking place. So yes, that is definitely continuing. We also talked about the identification of bodies and the proper procedure for proper burial for individuals in preparation, and that that's done by the you know, the Hever condition. It's a very uh, in Israel, it's a very specialized um, process put on by the again, the rabbinate, I also learned recently that uh, the fact of identifying somebody doesn't necessarily need to be uh, somebody from the rabbinate, just needs to be an expert in forensics identification. And I learned this week, or actually yesterday, I learned that there was a call out to certified forensics um, specialists to come to Israel and to help speed up that process of identifying bodies, because there are over 1,400 bodies that have been uh, 
discovered and most recently well under 800 have been identified and it's mm-hmm. already it's already been two weeks and our our custom is to bury a body bury the person within you know as soon as possible within a 24-hour period of time and that's not happening and part of that is because of being able to identify the bodies so i i, I think it's important that people understand that you know forensics specialists all over the world are coming to help israel in the ident- identification process mm-hmm. i get chucked up choked up over this because it's really a challenging thing it, it absolutely is i and i think that this you know particular example that you mentioned is interesting because it just shows how modern judaism has these very interesting Nexi, is that a word? Is that the plural of nexus? Um, between things that need to happen in a in a ritual way and things that can happen in a in a scientific way. For example, I'm not entirely an expert on this topic at all, but I think the collecting of remains and making sure that we have all or almost all of you know the physical remains of a person falls under that ritual category that that does need to be done by people with particular religious training but once that has been done then from a scientific perspective understanding you know do we have the dna or the dental records or what have you to be assured of who you know this person was um that that you know that's done in a scientific way and doesn't have the same but in this case the two you know have to work together so that we can make sure that um that we're able to do both both things make sure we have you know everyone and are respectful to their physical uh being and also that we know you know who who it is that we need to to bury in the few minutes that we have left i mentioned at the top of the podcast about the two individuals that were released on Friday, how is that being received in, in Israel? I think that in Israel, um, of course, any hostages being released is a is a positive thing. And we are, you know, waiting for that to be true of all of the hostages. Um, I think people are sort of reserved, though, in, you know, to what extent we can be celebrating or, or happy about this. A, because we know how many are still being held hostage. And B, because I do think there is a s- assumption amongst Israelis that the release of these two is a type of psychological warfare in and of itself, right? For Hamas to release these two. Mm, makes it seem like if Israel would only do what they want or if Israel would only work in the right ways and negotiate in the right way, then more hostages could be released. And so, you know, if that's not happening, does that somehow point the blame or point a finger at Israel for the rest, which is not a healthy, you know, psychological situation for the country to be in? Well, I think on that note, we should uh, wrap up and just say that the release of the two hostages is a is a sign of hope that the rest of them are being um, treated properly and that they soon will be 
released. Liz, thank you again Amen. for your time today. Be safe, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everyone.